0: And this uh, is the time where we sort of open it up to have any questions that you may have um, about something that you've read in Scripture, maybe something that's been said in one of the Sunday morning worship services, or something you've heard in some of the teaching sessions that we have here, or just something as your own reading uh, in God's Word that you've had a question about. So um, Ben has a mic, so Ben, make sure you click that mic on. And uh, who has a question here today? And like I said, I-, I will do my best to answer these questions. I may not have all the answers, uh, but I'll do my best to do that. And so, who has a question this evening? All right, Bonnie, your hand went straight up. Um, first... Can you hear me? Yes. All right, hold on a second. I'll be back. Never mind. There we go. He didn't turn it on. Ah. <laughs> he thought he did reading um, 1 Corinthians. Okay. He was reading 1 Corinthians um, 13, chapters 13 and 14 about love. Okay. And speaking in tongues. Okay. What is that? Okay. So speaking in tongues and particularly what was said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14. So um, in fact, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 briefly. Um, This is a helpful passage for us to look at and and to recognize. This is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. It's often called the love passage in Scripture. Um, This is one of those passages that when I'm doing weddings, I've often uh, quoted because it speaks about what love is about. But yet also in this section, particularly a section that goes from chapter 12 and goes through chapter 14, Uh, Paul does reference what we call the spiritual gift of tongues, or speaking in tongues. And there's a lot of confusion about that today, a lot of uh, questioning about what what that is, uh, particularly what it is then, what it is now, and uh, whether or not it's something that we should be seeking uh, today to implement. And more particularly, there are even those who would teach that unless you speak in tongues, um, that, that you're not truly someone who has the Holy Spirit, that one of the indications of having the Holy Spirit is that you must speak in tongues. And so we'll, we'll address uh, all of those things there um, in a few moments. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So just as something to help us in this entire discussion, uh, and sometimes I feel like this can get lost because there's a lot of strong opinions about uh, the gift of tongues, the gift of healings, what we call miraculous gifts, and many times we can be sort of, and some of the stuff I've read, some of the things I've heard people say, can be very bombastic uh, about people on different sides of this particular issue, and it seems like we lose this focus that we need to be loving each other as we come to disagreements on these things. There are um, good... Friends of mine that I have, there are good, upstanding believers that would tell you something a little bit different than what I'm going to tell you today. So I'm going to provide my perspective on what I think the Scripture teaches about the gift of tongues. Um, This is a a perspective that I have had that I've even evolved and grown in over time because there was a time where uh, I had a little bit of a different view of things than I do right now. So um, the question is, what what is tongues? I think we, we have to address this from a couple... Few points. First of all, what is the biblical gift of tongues? Secondly, do I need to practice the gift of tongues to have the Holy Spirit? In other words, is is speaking in tongues an indication that I have the Holy Spirit? And then, thirdly, uh, after answering those questions, is the gift of tongues even something that is happening today? And so, we'll sort of hit through those three questions here this morning. The first one: What is the gift of tongues? Now, um, despite what you may see uh, portrayed on television, despite what you might see with televangelists or on, on uh, Christian um, programming that you'll find on television today, the gift of tongues that is often practiced and seen today is very foreign to the gift of tongues that we see in the New Testament. Um, oftentimes, it's sort of a babbling, a uh, uh, repeating phrases, sort of sort of things that don't have any connection with actual language here on earth. But when we look at when the gift of tongues was practiced, particularly in the book of Acts, and I would say that that becomes normative for us throughout the New Testament, and when they refer to the gift of tongues, it is the speaking of a previously unknown human language. So when we look at what the biblical gift of tongues is, it is the speaking of a previously unknown human language and again we would won't take the time to turn there but acts chapter 2 describes on the day of pentecost when the holy spirit came the apostles with the disciples which are now apostles spoke in various tongues and those those tongues were languages and it actually makes the comment that that there because jerusalem was sort of a melting pot there were a lot of different people coming from different areas of of the Roman Empire there, and they all heard them speaking in their own dialect or in their own particular language. And so it wasn't that it was some unintelligible gibberish, but rather it was a known human language that has previously been unknown by the person who is practicing this gift of tongues. So we find that throughout scripture. Now, now Paul does reference this idea, particularly in verse 13, of the tongues of angels. Um, I would just point out there that he doesn't actually say that the tongue of angels is something that is is in action, but rather he uses it as, as a comparison for what love is supposed to be. So if I speak with various tongues of men, or if I speak, if I have the ability to speak with the tongues of angels, he's not necessarily implying that that's an ability, but he's saying if I have that ability, but I don't have love, all I'm doing is making noise and I'm not actually accomplishing anything. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 there. So again, I think when we look at how it's practiced in the New Testament, how it was particularly presented in the book of Acts, it is human languages that were previously unknown. So it would be like, you know, I don't know Mandarin Chinese. So if I were to have the gift of tongues today, I would get up here and start saying something in Mandarin Chinese, and I'm not gonna even to attempt to say anything in Mandarin. I know Siqua, all right? Or is that, was that Mandarin or Cantonese? Mandarin, Siqua, which I think means watermelon, so that is the extent of my, my, my knowledge of uh, Chinese. Or, or when I went to uh, France several years ago, I was trying to learn French when we went there, and the only phrase I could come up with was le orange," which is the orange cat. And when I was in Paris, I saw an orange cat, le orange." It was, it was very exciting. Um, now, the difference between the gift of tongues and that is that I took the effort and put the effort in, into knowing that. I sought to learn that language. What the Holy Spirit would do, particularly in the first century, is he would come to people who didn't know languages and they would be able to speak that other language for the purpose of sharing the gospel. So it had a particular role in helping to spread the gospel to other people. So that's what the biblical gift of tongues is. It is the speaking of a previously unknown human language. Now, the next question is, do I need to have or practice this gift of tongues to have the Holy Spirit? Now, I I think this is a really important question because there are people there today that will point to what happened at Pentecost. and, And that is when the Spirit is sent to the church and when the Spirit comes to the church, people started speaking in tongues. And so the the natural conclusion that comes out of that is, well, then, if I'm supposed to receive the Spirit, shouldn't the same thing be happening to me? Shouldn't I be speaking in previously unknown human languages? Now, I'll just be honest. There are many people who claim to be Christians who who know that they have the Holy Spirit and they have never spoken in tongues so what what has what has been sort of come up through the um, through the arguments that have been brought out about this is that well you can be a Christian, you can have the indwelling spe- indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but you haven 't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that when you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is seen by speaking in tongues, so that essentially if you 're going to be A spiritual Christian, you must speak in tongues. That's sort of the idea that's put out there. Now, I I need to be fair that not everybody who believes in tongue speaking has that viewpoint. And even those who believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit requires speaking in tongues, I may be sort of broad brushing them in what they're saying. But generally, that's the idea that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is seen in the speaking of tongues. Now, I'm not going to spend the time to to talk about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is today. We don't really have the time to delve into a deeper subject, but I would like to point you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because I think what Paul says here regarding um, the, the gift, not just of tongues, but all spiritual gifts is very insightful for us in considering this subject. Does it, am I a more spiritual person if I speak in tongues? And Paul is going to make the point, no. Notice what he says in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think what's important to note here, first of all, is the phrase that he uses in the Holy Spirit. That is a term that we find out throughout Scripture that's often used as describing our relationship with Christ, that we're united to Christ, we are in Christ. And when we talk about baptism, we talk about being baptized with or in Christ's death and raised to new life in his resurrection, that union is there. And so I think Paul is at least alluding to the idea of what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. What does it mean to be immersed in the Holy Spirit? What's the primary evidence of that? And he gives that answer in verse 3. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to say Jesus is accursed. In other words, you're going to reject Christ. You're going to turn away from Christ. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to say Jesus is what? Lord. So that the difference between someone that is a Christ follower and someone who is not a Christ follower is the influence of the Holy Spirit. You can't, no one who has the Holy Spirit is going to say Jesus is accursed. No one who doesn't have the Holy Spirit will say Jesus is Lord. And this lines up with what Jesus says in John chapter 3. If we're going to enter the kingdom, what does he say to Nicodemus? You must be what? Born again. And then he talks about how the Spirit... Blows where he sees fit, just like the wind comes and goes as he sees fit. So, again, just to talk about that idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit, I think what, what Paul is pointing us to recognize here is that if you say Christ is Lord, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, that is an indication that you have been given the Holy Spirit in full measure. There's nothing more of the Spirit you need besides that confession of Christ. Now there is another way in which the Spirit exhibits Himself in the believer's life, and we see that in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but there is the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the common good. And then notice what he's For the common good, notice what he says. For one is given the spirit of the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. And to another, faith by the same spirit. And just to quickly note, that is not referring to faith in the sense of saving faith, trusting in Christ, but rather it's referring to a... a ability to trust God in the midst of really, really difficult circumstances so that you talk about and you see people that have have great faith. That's the idea there. He goes on, to another, gifts of healing by one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one And the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then he goes on to say in verse 12 For just as one body, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one Spirit. So, what Paul is saying is the Spirit gives each individual believer gifts, or a, at least one gift. And that one gift is different than the gift he may give another believer. So, And, and but the point that Paul makes here is the Spirit gets to choose this according to his sovereign will. To some person, he gives the ability to have great faith. To another, he gives them the ability to discern between spirits. To another, he gives them the ability to speak in tongues. And to another, perhaps the ability to provide healing. And so this passage for me makes it abundantly clear that it is not necessary that every believer speak in tongues. Because the Spirit doesn't give the gift of tongues to every believer. He didn't give the gift of tongues to every single believer and so I think that answers our, the second question that, that I'm sort of pulling questions out from what you said. The first question is, what is the gift of tongues? It is speaking previously unknown human language. Secondly, do I have to speak in tongues to be baptized in the Spirit? And I would say no. If the Spirit hasn't given you that gift, then you're not going to speak in tongues. Now the third question, the one that maybe is even a little bit more controversial is, well, do the gift of tongues... And more particularly, I'm going to sort of broaden out here what we call the miraculous gifts. Do they still happen today? Are they still in operation for us today? Um, There are various divergent views on this today. Um, And this is what really differentiates a church like ours from what would be considered part of what we call the Charismatic Church, the Pentecostal Church, the Signs and Wonders, or even Health and Wealth Church today, and that is the view that these gifts have ceased, or that they're no longer in operation today. Um, Now, when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says an awful lot about tongues and miraculous gifts. He gives very specific instructions for how that gift is to be practiced in the church and even calls people to desire to have the gift of tongues along with other gifts as well. So how can I, as I'm reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, how can I read that and then say, yeah, but that's not for us today? I think it's important we understand why these miraculous gifts existed. What purpose did they have? And for that, we need to go to the book of Hebrews. So turn with me very quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I will be honest with you. There was a time where I believed that these miraculous gifts were still in action today. Now, let me quickly um, clarify something. When I say that I don't believe the miraculous gifts are in action today, I am not saying that I don't believe in miracles Miracles still happen. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ, that is a miracle. Miracles happen in the fact that there are things that happen outside of common knowledge in the medical field. People are healed of sicknesses and illnesses. And there are times where the medical community says, I don't know why. God can still work miracles according to his will. But using particular gifts particularly these miraculous gifts, I don't think is something that continues today. And the reason is the purpose for those gifts has now passed aside. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews here is calling on us. In chapter 1, he talks about how Christ is better. How Christ is better than the Old Testament system. How Christ is better than angels. How Christ is better. And he's calling us to trust in Him. And so... He says in chapter 2, for 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's talking about the importance, the dire importance of understanding the gospel, of turning to Christ in faith. And then he talks about how that message was given. Verse three: It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those, by us, or was attested to to us by those who heard. So what he's talking about is how was the gospel transmitted? Jesus came to Earth, and for thirty-three years of his life, he lived on this Earth. Three of which he spent with his disciples. And in those three years he spent with his disciples, what did he do? He trained them. He equipped them so that when he told, after he raised from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, we looked at, it, looked at a, pa- a portion of that this morning, he gave them the great commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of other "...of all the other nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've ever commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And look, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age." And so the message that Jesus brought was given then to the apostles. And the apostles gave this same message. But that message was attested to those who heard it. So these are first century believers... Now, how did God authenticate that message? How did he make it so that when Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles would stand up and preach, how would he make it known and sure that what they were saying was his word? Now, with Jesus, it was attested by miracles, right? Jesus did many miracles, He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. And all of these things, Jesus himself says, as the Pharisees are questioning him, who are you? What authority are you saying this, with?" And he's like, look, if you don't believe me, believe the signs. They attest to what I'm saying. Well, that same pattern continues with the apostles. And that is what the author of Hebrews points out. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by... Notice what he says, signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, we have to remember who the writer of Hebrews is saying these gifts were given to. They were given to the apostles, those who heard the declaration by Jesus and then those who gave that declaration to them. It's also important to note that he speaks in verse four while God bore witness as though this was something that was happening already in the past. So what you have is a third generation believer or actually technically a second generation believer. Jesus gives the message. We have the first disciples. And then those disciples take the message and other people hear it. And what this writer is saying is it seems like that those things are already beginning to fade into the background because those gifts are beginning to wane away. Why? Now, why would that happen? Why would those gifts wane away? Because there was no longer a need for God to bear witness through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because... Revelation was coming to a close. And this is where I really hang my hat as to why I believe these things do not continue anymore. There's a, a, a scriptures tell us, Paul tells us, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be what? Perfect or complete, lacking nothing. The word of God is sufficient. And so when we come in and understand the usefulness of these signs that help to bear witness to the genuineness, is that a word, genuineness? The genuineness of the message of the apostles, once the scripture is fulfilled and completed, that, that signs and wonders is no longer needed. The spirit chooses then to use his word. Now, let's think for a second about what the gift, particularly that we're thinking of, tongues is. It's speaking a language I don't know. Um, and particularly, the way that we see it working in the New Testament is someone would stand up and they would say something in a foreign language, that, a language that they had never learned, and what they were saying, guess where they were getting that from? Directly from who? God. They were receiving a level of, of revelation directly from him. Does that happen today? People claim it does, but it does not. God, we have what we call a closed canon or or authoritative group of scriptures. God no longer needs to provide special revelation to us directly to one person who then gives it to others. He's given us his word. Now, let me just point out two dangers of having the view that continuing revelation goes on today. The first is that it takes, you, it takes you to a point where you begin to set aside Scripture for experience. I want to experience these great and marvelous miracles, and the Word of God is not enough. How does God want to work in your life? Does He want to work in your life through ecstatic experiences, or does He want to work in your life through the living, abiding Word of God? It is the Word that He uses to change us. So at first, at first point, when we look at these things and we go this way, we can have a danger of neglecting Scripture. But secondly, the other danger with this is that it can bring somebody to have a very exploitive way of dealing with other people. So this is, this is the way it happens, unfortunately, in a lot of churches that have revelation. They will get up and, or say that they're getting special revelation. They'll get up and, and they'll say... I received a word of the Lord for you. And that word of the Lord says that God is going to bless you sevenfold if you sow an offering of $700 into, and here's the kicker, into my ministry. So what they're claiming to have is revelation from God, giving you a direct command to do something that primarily benefits them. Now, not everybody does this, but I'll be honest, a lot of people in the charismatic movement, do this thing. And what they're doing is they are exploiting people by claiming they have special revelation from God. Listen, you don't need any special revelation from God. You have it in the word of God. If you want to know what God has said, open your Bible and read it. That is the glory of God. Christian gospel is that it's not dependent on one person to provide it to you or to explain it to you it's given to you in what we have in his word and so based upon what we have here in Hebrews chapter 10 based upon the very tone that he says that these things are beginning to to wane away I think that we have strong evidence to point to the fact that these miraculous gifts are no longer in operation today now Will I allow that possibly God can give a special, um, a special ability with languages? Or even possibly as somebody is taking the gospel to an unknown place and he gives them special, um, special economy with a, with a different language? Perhaps. Perhaps that can happen today. But I don't believe it's necessary for the church today to be looking for these things. We have the word of God. The word of God is enough. So, that was a Quite the explanation of your question. Does that, does that answer your question? All right, great. Other questions? Yes, Richard. Ben's bringing you the mic so everyone can hear you. Pastor Phil, just a quick question. Um, this time of year, we just saw the sight and sound, David, um, and there's a lot of other stuff that's going to be shown. You know, the Passion, the whole gamut of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot, but what's your take? Because I've heard on both ends, we're talking about a violation of the second commandment, mm. especially when people portray Christ. Right. I just want to hear your take on that, especially this time of year, because there's a lot of stuff out there, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily biblical or not okay. to do some of it. Right. And what the criteria is exactly for knowing that. Okay, so you're referencing, I'm assuming, the, the commandment that we're not to make graven images. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, great question, because you're right, at this time of year, um, that does become something that comes up a lot, um, particularly as we consider the, the, um, the celebration of Christ's resurrection, and more particularly his crucifixion. Um, there was a lot said about this particular topic several years ago when Mel Gibson produced his very well-known uh, movie called The Passion of the Christ. Is that a violation of... Uh, what we see in the commandments. So look with me in um, Exodus chapter 20 and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. my commandment. So this is the prohibition against making graven images. You'll not make for yourself a carved or a graven image. It's not to be of anything in heaven above, or that's in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So your question is, is it okay to watch a, a video that perhaps has an actor portraying Jesus Christ um, is it okay uh, to, like we did, we saw a video about David, and there at the very end, it showed some things that, that in sort of a silhouette form uh, of Christ being crucified. Is that a problem? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out and look at what, what God is specifically forbidding here. Because if we're going to say that we can't have any graven image of anything that has any likeness or or anything that has anything to do with God, well, we have to understand all that's said here because he doesn't just limit it to spiritual things, does he? He says that we can't have a carved image of anything that is in heaven or that is on the earth or that is in the water under the earth. So, I think it's important for us to begin there and recognize is God really saying that we can't make any images of anything that exists is that what the second commandment forbids now there are some people who take it that far and they would say you can't have any any type of graven image whatsoever so that it would literally be wrong to take a picture so you know if this was the case and this is going to be enacted selfie stick sales are going way down all right like, is, is that what God is saying here, that you cannot have any kind of, of image at all? And I would say that, well, we have to compare Scripture to Scripture. When you look later on in Exodus, when you look later on in the law, God gives very specific um, commands to Israel to make engraved images. Right? The Ark of the Covenant. What's, what is on top of the Ark of the Covenant? What is there the likeness of that's carved in there? Seraphim, spiritual beings. There are all throughout the, the scriptures a discussion of how artistic um, people with skill and art would put together things that would represent things here on earth. So, so what's the difference? What is an allowable way or a useful way of making something and what is not? And I think the key comes in verse 5 because he's connecting this with verse 1. or I'm sorry, verse 3. The first command is you shall have how many other gods? None. No other gods before me. Worship me alone. And then God comes in and he tells to a people who are living in a time and an age where idol worship, graven images are the very thing that people worship. He's saying don't make graven images. And he ties that in verse 5. Don't make yourself a carved image. Don't make a likeness of anything that's in heaven above, the earth beneath, or the water that's underneath it. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I would say that the point of the second commandment is that we are not to worship graven images. They are not to be the focus of our worship. Um, It's interesting that he talks about the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, the earth beneath, or that is in the water beneath the earth. And if you turn to Romans 1, we're not going to do that, but you turn to Romans 1 and Paul talks about how um, sin progresses through society. And one of the primary ways that's seen is that people exchange the glory of the creator for what? The creature. And they worship the creature rather than the creator. And so Paul's whole point there is that people have this tendency to worship that which God has created rather than the creator himself. So I think what we see here is we're not to bow down or worship those things. I don't think God is making a tacit, uh, a tacit denial and is forbidding and prohibiting any graven image at all. I, I think other places in Scripture make that abundantly clear that that's not to be the case. What he is forbidding is the worship of those things. Now, how does that apply to us today in the 21st century, 2024? How, how do we apply this command? I think it's important to keep in mind, first of all, well, we certainly, we've progressed beyond bowing down to idols, Right? We don't, we don't take a statue and, and put it up and, and bow down to it. We don't do that anymore, right? And in one sense, we don't, but I tell you what, it's very easy for us to make other things and worship them above worshiping God. Secondly, I would say that, that when it comes to portrayals of Christ, so the passion of the Christ or different things like that, first of all, if somebody is going to portray Christ, I think it's important That they portray him for who he is, not for who they imagine him to be. Um, Scriptures talk about that we are not to have a God of our own imaginations. That is idolatry. We need to worship the God of the Bible. And so often in portrayals, particularly portrayals of Christ that are done by Hollywood, there is, at the best, artistic license taken with who Christ, Christ is, and at the worst, they're seeking to particularly modify or manipulate our image of who he is. So we have to be discerning about that when we come across these things. And then thirdly, and finally, I think something that we really need to think about is what comes into your mind when you think about Christ or when you think about God? If it is the image that has been portrayed by some Hollywood producer or by some artist I think you're flirting here with a possible violation of the second commandment. When you think of who Jesus is, we should think of Jesus as who he claims to be, not necessarily what he looks like. I think that that's where we can run into problems with the second commandment, is that when my my concept of who Christ is, my concept of who God is, is so tied to a graven image or a Hollywood film or whatever, that's where we're get, beginning to come close to, to going over that line, particularly in our day and age here today. Is that helpful? All right. Good right. Two good questions. I love it. I love it. Who's got a third? Come on, don't all jump at once. Who's got a third question? Let your dad get you the mic. Well, I've been going to like an RP church okay. in Geneva. And they have like different views on like baptism. Okay. And I wanna know like where in the Bible does it talk about like believers baptism versus infant baptism. Okay. Like, like John the Baptist baptized people. So, right. Like, baptism is good, but where does like that kind of like separate you? why do why are there different views on it? Right. Okay. That that's a great question. Um, I, I tell people all the time. Um, I, you know, I'm a Baptist. I make no bones about being a Baptist. No apologies for being a Baptist, but I am about as close to a Presbyterian as a Baptist can get. All right? I have many, many uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that I know that are reformed Presbyterians or other type of Presbyterians out there. Um, this is just something that we come to find a great disagreement on, and that is the role of baptism. Now, First of all, I want to be fair to my Presbyterian brothers and sisters in that they do not believe that infant baptism saves someone, nor do they even believe, as the Roman Catholic Church believes, that being baptized as an infant washes away original sin. The way that they view it is they view that that the Old Testament practice of circumcision, which was a way in which someone was placed into the community of faith, God's community, That that has been replaced in the new covenant community with the practice of baptism. And so while that was done on infants in the Old Testament, so it is done on infants in the New Testament. It is not a guarantee that they're a believer. It's not even saying that they're a believer, but rather just saying that they are part of the covenant community. And so they still believe that a person has to come to, to faith in Jesus Christ. They still believe that a person has to, uh, has to accept him personally and, and repent of their sins, trust in Christ completely. So that is their view of baptism. It is, it is compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are views of infant baptism that are incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that would say that original sin is washed away, those that would say that you must be baptized to be a believer, um, uh, those things are, are incorrect. Now that being said, I'm a Baptist, and I believe in credo baptism as opposed to paedo baptism. So paedo comes from the uh, Greek word for, um, for child or infant. Credo comes from the Greek word for creed or confession. And so the real difference is, do you have to possess and confess Christ before you're baptized, or does your baptism as an infant, is that enough to show that? And, and I come down pretty strongly on the view that we need to have believer's baptism, that we need to confess Christ as our Savior. There's a couple reasons why I believe this. First of all, Um, I have this, really, I don't have this book, but I wish I had this book. Someone showed me this book once, and it was everything the Bible teaches about infant baptism. And it was a big, thick book, and you open it up, and every page in the book was blank. All right. Now, I say that jokingly, because you won't find infant baptism in the New Testament. You won't find one instance ever where it is clearly said that a child, uh, particularly an infant, is baptized. Now, they will refer to places in Acts where there are household baptisms, uh, but they're making a big leap to say that there were infants that were actually baptized in that moment. Um, We don't know that there were infants there. We just know that uh, that whole households came to Christ and were baptized. Secondly, that's the pattern we see in Scripture. I think one of the greatest examples of this is Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. All right? God sends Philip as an evangelist to share the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the gospel with him, and the the eunuch comes to Christ. And then what is the next step of faith? Here's water. Let's get baptized. And what does Philip say? Okay. And so he baptizes him. So the pattern in Scripture is always faith and then baptizing them. Thirdly, when we see the Great Commission, all right, Go ye therefore into all the world, and make disciples, proclaiming the gospel to them, teaching them to observe all things. And once you've made them disciples, you then baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. But the final thing that I think is important to keep in mind, and and in Romans, uh, let me see if I think Romans chapter 5, Paul makes it abundantly clear what baptism is about. What is it seeking to show? Um, and this is where I think the line from Presbyterians, that their way of thinking that says, well, I'm just being placed inside the community, that is not what baptism is meant to show. Rather, baptism is shown uh, to be that which is... Um, showing our union with Christ by faith. So let me see here. No, I'm sorry. Um, it's Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then here's the key. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does baptism show? It shows that we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection and the The conclusion that Paul makes then is that we have to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ, and living a life that shows those things. Now here's where this falls apart if this is referring to infant baptism. An infant doesn't have the capacity to understand what they're doing. He doesn't have the capacity to obey the command to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God. They don't understand that they have been united to Christ by faith and that as Christ died, they have died. As Christ has risen from the dead, they have risen from the dead. And so I would say that what Paul points to here as as baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ's death, we are buried with him in his death, and a symbol of our union of resurrection, we're given new life and so we're to walk in that new life. That's just not something that an infant is capable of doing. And so I, I think here in Romans chapter 6 is the strongest argument for why infant baptism is not, um, is not something that I think the scriptures lay out for us, apart from the fact that every time in scripture you see faith and then baptism, and that you don't have any instances, true instances, of infant baptism in scripture. So that is, in a nutshell, why I am a Baptist, unashamed to be a Baptist, but again, what do we, we begin talking about? We begin talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What must we have to believers? We must be what? We must have love. If I have all the right theology, but I don't have love, I'm useless. And so I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love my, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, my Methodist brothers and sisters. Um, those brothers and sisters that, that continue to look to their baptism as infants as that which has placed them into the community of faith. I understand it. And, and really, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily have a problem with you baptizing an infant if your statement is only that they're being placed into the community of faith. My problem is that you don't baptize them once they come to faith in Christ. And that is, that is traditionally what you see going on there. There's no credo baptism. It's all paedo or infant baptism. Good question. You have any follow-ups? Because I'm sure they have all sorts of arguments against what I said. Okay, okay, all right, that's fine. All right, we've got time for one more question. Who has a question? Krista in the front. Can you explain- hmm? <laughs> Hold on a second. Take, take the mic. Can you explain... Hebrews chapter 6. All right, you want me to do that in eight minutes? (laughs) Or at least like the first line. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6. In the second. So, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Is that what you're referring to? Whenever it said like not laying a foundation of repentance from like it sounds like I would imagine them to say the opposite. You know what I mean? Right. So what he says here is he say he's telling us to to move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, when he says that, if you read Hebrews one through five, I look at that and I'm like, this is like not elementary doctrine. This is like. Seminary level teaching that the author of Hebrew gives us so again, he's showing us the superiority of Christ the, the great and vast riches of Christ here But the point that he's trying to come to is he's, he's coming to say Listen, I have to explain all these things because you're getting caught up in false teachings when really I should be encouraging you to live a life that accords with what you're saying here Now he doesn't say that there isn't a foundation of repentance and dead faith. Notice what he says, let us not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. He's saying that our, our lives in Christ need to progress beyond just simply, yes, I've turned from my sin, and yes, I believe in Christ, that my faith needs to impact my everyday life, so that the choices I make are shown, that my faith is shown in the way I live, And he goes on and talks about that. Um, He says, this we will do if God permits. And he goes, why? Because it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gifts, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of God, and then have fallen away. To restore them again to what? Repentance. since." they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And so the point that he's driving for towards here is that faith, true faith, genuine faith, works. As James makes his point, faith without works is what? Dead. And this is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying. I, I, he's saying, I need to go on from this and call you to living a life of holiness in accordance with Christ. Not calling you to repent again because you've fallen back you've turned away from christ the point that he's trying to say is he he actually is given a warning he warns them that listen if those who have the knowledge of the gospel will be judged with greater severity than those who do not those who have heard and seen what God has done among a, among a people, among a congregation, those who have seen those things, if they have drunk in those things and yet they still reject Christ, there's no hope for someone who does that. There's no hope for anyone who turns from Christ. In fact, he gives this example, the same example that Jesus gives in verse 7 He says the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is what worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned this is what we call one of the great warning passages in Hebrews. There's several of them, and we believe that once you've turned to Christ and trusted in Him, you are safe in His hand. No one is able to pluck you out of His hand in the Father's hands. Once we have believed, we're saved. And but people will come to this passage and they'll say, "Boy, it certainly seems like He's saying that you can lose your faith." That is not what He's saying. He's saying if you Drink in the abundance of God's grace. And you don't bear fruit. Rather, you bear thorns and thistles. Then you're not genuinely a believer at all. And those who reject Christ. Those who reject Christ. Will be burned. It's a sobering passage. But go on. In verse nine, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so what the what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying you can't just essentially, as we say in our day and age, rest on your laurels. You can't just say, I've repented. I believed in Christ, put this ticket to heaven in my back pocket and then go live however I want to. If you're bearing thorns and thistles, you're in great danger. But rather, now that you have the foundation of faith and repentance, live a life that shows that repentance. Live a life that brings about good deeds. Live a life that bears great fruit and shows the blessing from God. So that's a, that's a great question. Any follow-ups? Is that, is that helpful? Okay, oh, great. All right, we have one minute left. We've had some good questions tonight. This has been great. Anyone have a one-minute question? Okay, one-minute question. In your teaching with Haggai, I think you turned it off i'm not good at this there you go there you uh, got it when you're uh haggai when you're teaching it says the lord stirred up their spirit mm-hmm. the spirit of the of the king the spirit of the high priest and the right. spirit of the people right what, what can you give an example or explain how god stirs up our spirit and how they weren't building didn't want to build the temple but now all of a sudden they do right so what is what is that today what does that look like can we put that in today's terms because you know God don't change and so right. how does God stir up our spirit that we do things that we weren't thinking now we do. Right. So is that God stirring us up? How does that uh, So I, does that I, I, us today? that's a great question. I think, I think what's important to keep in mind there is, is and what I tried to get across this morning is that God doesn't force you to do anything against your desires. God is not, I think sometimes people get this idea that God drags people kicking and screaming into the kingdom. That is not what God does. God rather changes your desires so that the things that you did want, you no longer want those things, rather, you want the things of God. That is how He stirs up your spirit, is in changed desires. So that while before you used to want to, to live a life for yourself, live a life of, of sinful indulgence, live a life that was all about you, now you want to live a life that's all about Christ. You want to, That's your greatest desire, that, that the thing that gives you joy is living for Him, going and, and, and speaking of Him, sharing Him to others. That that is the great thing that brings you joy and happiness and desire. So, so when I... Speak about God stirring up um, our spirits. He's referring to stirring up the things that we want. And the psalmist says this. He prays that God would give him the desires of his heart. Now, we look at that, and I think sometimes we think, well, you know, if I desire a Ferrari, God's going to give me a Ferrari, right? And again, I keep trying to get that Ferrari fund in for the pastors, you know, the budget line, and it's not happening, all right? And the point is, is God is not saying that, well, God will give you everything you desire. Rather, God will change the actual desires of your heart so that you would desire him above all things. What is the greatest commandment? You shall what? Love the Lord your God. Can you love something if you don't desire it? No. And so that is how God works. He changes our desires. He changes our hearts. He stirs up our spirits so that we want him more than the things we used to want. Is that helpful? Yeah. All right. All right. That was a three-minute question, so... We're out of time. This has been great. I had, I had a, a sermon prepared, but, but I enjoy I really enjoy these question and answer times. I hope they were helpful for you. We had some great questions. Um, next, next month, come with more questions. Bring the hard questions. Like I said, I may not always have the questions. Sometimes I may say, I need to get back to you on that. Uh, but uh, I, it's hopeful. I'm glad that we can air these things because the question you have, someone else may have. Someone else may be curious about and uh, gives us opportunity to talk about these things. Let's close in prayer. Father. Lord, we thank you again for the abundance of your love and grace and kindness given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for such a beautiful day you gave us today. The sun shining brilliantly, the temperature nice and mild. Lord, this is a a glorious gift from your hand. Father, may, may we continue to give praise to you later on this week when it's colder and rainier. That is a gift from your hand. Father, thank you that your word guides us in all things. May we seek to be bound to it. May we seek to, as the writer of Hebrews challenges us, to not just simply rest on our laurels, but, Father, to go on to maturity. Father, that we would live a life that reflects your grace at work within us. Father, thank you again for bringing us here safely. Dismiss us with your blessing. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.